Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in the History of the American West, part of the New Books Network. I'm Andrew Graybill, your host for this episode, and I'm a professor of history as well as a director of the William P. Clement Center for Southwest Studies at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. It's my great pleasure to speak today with Sam Haynes, professor of history and director of the Center for Greater Southwestern Studies at the University of Texas at Arlington, right here in the DFW area metroplex. Sam is the author or editor of a whopping six previous books, including a brief biography of President James K. Polk and, most recently, a wide-ranging study of American attitudes towards Great Britain during the first half of the 19th century. Today, we're going to discuss Sam's latest book, Unsettled Land, From Revolution to Republic, The Struggle for Texas, published this past spring by Basic Books. Full disclosure, during the 2019-20 academic year, Sam was the senior research fellow at the Clement Center, so my colleagues and I had front row seats to Sam's work on this project, at least until the COVID-19 pandemic erupted and scattered us all to the winds. At any rate, welcome to the podcast, Sam. This has been a long time in coming. It's good to be able to chat with you. Thanks, Andy. So I've become an avid New Books listener over the last 18 months or so, and it seems that many, maybe even most episodes, begin with some variation on this question. Can you tell us a little bit about your career path to this point and uh, how this project developed from your previous work? Sure. So back in the 1980s, when I was in grad school, I had the opportunity to teach Texas history for a year. Um, I was not... um, an Americanist by training. Um, I grew up in Europe, and so most of the courses that I took at the undergraduate level were uh, European history courses. So um, the fact that Texas had been a separate nation for almost a decade was news to me uh, when I started teaching Texas history, and I became absolutely um, enthralled by uh, by the subject. And so uh, as I was starting my graduate career, I decided that I would focus on Texas and Texas in the early no- decades of the 19th century. And my first book was a study of a little-known um, expedition into Mexico uh, by... Um, some uh, Anglo-Texans in the early 1840s. And, um, and I've been teaching at UTA uh, since, the, since 1993, I believe, and I've been teaching Texas history pretty regularly um, uh, for the last three decades. So all of the ideas, I think, in Unsettled Land have been sort of percolating and sort of kicking around in my head, if you will. And I, I don't want to say it was an easy book to write, because that certainly wasn't the case. But it was a, a book that I knew I wanted to write. And I felt when I pitched the book to Basic that I had a lot of important things to say. Um, as the years went by, my I became less and less... Uh, happy with the the literature that it was out that was out there um, 
so much so, I suppose, that by the end, in, in the last few years, I haven't used a textbook for my course in Texas history. I used a reader of, of documents and essays. There just wasn't a, a synthesis um, of Texas in the 19th century that I felt told the story in all of its complex glory. So um, that was one of the things that I wanted to do with Unsettled Land. And I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to talk about this during the course of our um, talk today, our conversation today. But there were a number of things that I really felt that traditionalists had gotten wrong. And so I had sort of an agenda of things that I wanted to, uh, a, a series, a list of things that I wanted to check um, when I was writing this book, things that I wanted to, I wanted to set the record straight in a number of different ways. But it was also, I think, more broadly, uh, an attempt to really tell the story of Texas, a story that seems the birth of early modern Texas, a story that seems so familiar to so many people, uh, but to tell it in a, in a very, very different way. So that was the goal. Because I'm afraid I'll forget to ask you this question if I don't do it right now. Let me, uh, let me drill down just a little bit and ask, what do you mean by early modern Texas, which I've heard you say before, which I absolutely love? Well, I didn't know what else to call it. I mean, it is, it is where early, it is where modern Texas begins. I suppose that in the uh, Mexican Republic period, when Americans, and not just Anglos, by the way, but when Americans begin to move into Texas and very soon thereafter, uh, a, a struggle for independence uh, uh, ensues. That's really when modern Texas, as you and I know it, uh, begins. And so that's why I call it the birth of early modern Texas. But you're right. I'm not uh, familiar with anyone else using that phrase. I love the term. Our friends who work on, say, early modern Europe, I'm sure, are sort of falling over right now with the fact <laughs> that you sort of appropriated that gloss. Okay. Right. So many listeners will be familiar with the standard narrative of the Texas Revolution. Um, still, I think it's uh, worth it if you would briefly characterize that sort of typical foundational story and then maybe explain in some broad strokes how your book departs from it. Right. Well, so it's no secret that the that traditional narrative is a very Anglo-centric one. It's been told for um, 150 years, uh, 200 years, um, by Anglos and given the stamp of approval by white male historians and popular writers. And it's a story which has been told really ad nauseum, uh, the same stories over and over and over again, uh, so much so that it's almost impossible to imagine um, the, the the story unfolding any other way. It's a story which really does privilege um, white alpha males and a very very small number of white alpha males. By the way, uh, there are uh, there's a cast of characters that I'm sure you know: Sam Houston, William Barrett Travis, James Bowie, and so on. And they loom so large in that narrative that they crowd aside uh, literally everybody and everything else. And so what I wanted to do was step back and tell the narrative uh, in a way that brought in uh, not just white males, but told the story of Texas, uh, tried to describe Texas as a very um, ethnically diverse place. In fact, one of the most diverse regions in North America uh, in the early decades of the 19th century. So that's not to say that the traditional narrative doesn't have a place in the meta narrative that I'm trying to describe, but clearly uh, they are not as important as they have um, been characterized in that, in that traditional narrative. And I guess I would also say that f fairly recently, some historians have tried to challenge that 
traditional celebratory narrative, but we're still focused on a handful of white men. And whether we see them as in this in heroic terms, as the traditionalists did, Eugene Barker, for example, or we see them as men who are trying to um, uh, expand the slave empire, we're still focusing on this small on this small group. And there's a lot going on in Texas, um, a, a lot more than just simply, and in the 1830s, I mean, a lot more than than a. Uh, a military struggle between Anglo colonists and the, and the, the Mexican government. Uh, I wanted to, when I pitched the book to basic, I told them that there was much more going on here than just simply a 13 day siege at the Alamo. And I think that's why they decided that um, I should be, they should give me the opportunity to tell that story. Although what's so great about that, a little inside baseball, and this is, um, you know, sort of gleaned from having spent, um, you know, a year basically across the hall from you, I know that the original cover design from your publisher featured exactly that, the Alamo, and I think you politely but strenuously pushed back against that. Is that right? Um, yes, politely but strenuously. Uh, I was appalled, to be perfectly honest, uh, and I, I don't want to to diss the art department at BASIC because I absolutely love the cover that we agreed upon. Um, but when I pitched the book to BASIC, I said, this is not a book about the Alamo. And they said, great, write that book. And then after, as we were, the project was winding down, they had the manuscript, it was being edited. I got an email from the art department uh, saying, here is your Here's the cover for the book, and I clicked on the PDF, and to my horror, found that it was a, a cover of the a picture of the Alamo with smoke rising from the walls. So anyway, um, they quickly realized that this was, um, you know, false advertising, if nothing else, and so we agreed on uh, the, the the cover that we have now. Right. Well, it speaks to the uh, sort of enduring power of that particular symbol. Without seeming silly, why is it that you think that for so many people, the story has been telescoped to, I mean, at most a few months in 1836? Maybe we leech back into 1835 and the first battle for San Antonio. But why has this much more complicated story simply not been told when I gather from listening to you, a lot of those pieces have been lying there to assemble? Right. Uh, you know, that's a, a great question. And I'm not even sure that I know the answer. Um, you know, historians have been almost at a loss to find new things to say uh, when they talk about the Alamo. And I think as a, as a result, we've had these books which try to address whether Travis drew a line in the sand or whether Crockett surrendered. I mean, we seem to be mired in this minutia um, when in fact, this is a fantastically complicated story with so many moving parts and why we haven't looked at it that way. Um, I honestly don't know. Um, I think perhaps because the story has been told again, so many times in, 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 in the same way. Uh, and that even when we've tried to, and I think historians, serious historians have known for quite some time that that Anglo-centric narrative was something that needed to be changed. Paul Lack, back in the 1990s, 1994, I think, uh, wrote a terrific essay uh, in the shadow of Eugene C. Barker, and he was bemoaning the fact that historians are still in Barker's shadow. They haven't really been able to move beyond that traditional narrative. And I think the answer some historians have come up with, 
was to insert people of color at various points throughout that narrative. And that's fine up to a point, but what it doesn't do is change the structure of the narrative. That traditional triumphalist narrative remained exactly the same. Um, it just had some token figures who uh, had been added later. What I wanted to do in Unsettled Land was just to set aside that traditional narrative entirely and uh, write the book as if I was writing the story of early modern Texas for the very first time. And I don't think anybody would argue that if we were writing that narrative for the first time in 2022, it wouldn't look like the narrative that took shape in the 20th century. And so that was the whole, that was the, the overarching goal of the book to provide not just a revisionist treatment of these events, but to look at them through a much broader lens. Uh, in many ways, just a, a totally new lens. Well, sort of a second, and I promise to our listeners, final inside baseball question. I remember, I think, some iteration of this book was called Borderland, um, The Struggle for Texas. And I'm not sure if it was you or the publisher, you know, how the sausage gets made. It's always kind of a mystery at the uh, publication level. But was there, is there a significance in the fact that the, that the um, title of the book changed? Or was that something that was done at, at BASIC? Well, Borderland, I was never very happy with Borderland. That was my idea. I wasn't married to it. And they, as it turns out, they weren't married to it either. And they wanted me to come up with a different title. And we had, um, I can't even remember some of these titles. I have to go back and look at my emails. Uh, but some of them were hilariously bad. Some of their suggestions and some of my suggestions, we immediately um, uh, just put in the trash. But uh, the, the funny thing about Unsettled Land was, I think it was my idea. Again, I have to, would have to go back to the emails to make sure. But I didn't really think it was a candidate for um, the title of the book. And in... Um, the meetings they had at BASIC, uh, they really fell in love with the title. And the more I thought about it, I thought because it had so many mean, different meanings, then I, I, um, I, tend, I agreed with them. So it was a very strange process, but I'm really happy with the title. Well, it's certainly a quality that emerges in a reading of the book is just how unbelievably turbulent this place and this time was. You really bring that to life. Um, one of the most poignant and powerful lines in the book comes, I think, on page seven, where you write that, quote, independence from Mexico meant the loss of freedom for many. And this made me think of Edmund Morgan's argument that freedom for some meant unfreedom, slavery, in the case of colonial Virginia, for others. Is that a suitable parallel? Or am I making too much of that? No, I, I think that makes sense. Uh, I, and I think that I'm not sure that Morgan did this, but we have to reframe the Texas Revolution. Uh, to And my book goes on into the Republic period, because when we think about Texas independence as a struggle for freedom, then it's a story that in the traditional narrative sort of ends with a, a blast of trumpets and a crash of cymbals at San Jacinto uh, with Houston's decisive victory there. But what I wanted to do was to carry the narrative on into the Republic, which was really the period that I had have studied and done so much research on in my career over the last few decades. And that's when the revolution, the, the, cons the results of the revolution are really – 
felt by by so many people in Texas, uh, peoples of color, uh, because now they have to deal with a regime, uh, the uh, the Lone Star um, government, which is defiantly and unapologetically committed to the ideology of white rule. So the story of Texas, a story of the Texas Revolution does not end on April 21st, 1836. It goes well on into the Republic period when we see um, what happens to um, people of color, um, Mexican-Americans, I call them Hispanos in the book, people of African descent, and all the many, many, many uh, Native Americans who are inhabiting that region. Well, I want to talk about um, about those different groups because, you know, of course, we have the uh, standard dramatist person A. We've got Stephen F. Austin. We've got Sam Houston. Of course, you add, uh, I think, some really important and telling new details to both of them and, of course, the defenders of the Alamo. But you build out a much fuller and richer cast of characters. Can you describe some of them, uh, the famous, but perhaps especially the unfamiliar, those who will be unfamiliar to any but maybe the most well-read specialist? Sure. So a friend of mine wrote me an email after he read the book and he said I was, he really enjoyed reading about some of the minor characters. And I thought, well, actually, they have been minor, uh, but they weren't minor to me and they're not really minor to the narrative um, that I'm trying to write. Um, Lorenzo de Zavala um, is, has always been seen as something of a peripheral figure. But in my narrative, I mean, as as a in the traditional narrative, as this Yucatan intellectual who makes his way to Texas, who signs the Declaration of Independence, and who agrees to serve as the uh, interim vice president um, of the first Texas government. But in my in the research that I did, uh, Lorenzo de Zavala was absolutely key uh, in the 1820s and the 1830s. And his relationship with Santa Ana, and let's not forget, this is a Mexican story long before it becomes an American one. That relationship with Santa Ana was absolutely essential in understanding um, the events of 1835-1836. It was really amazing to me that we had we had missed that. And, and I think the reason is um, <laughs> dispiritingly simple. Uh, Anglo or American, Anglo-American historians have made the, the story of the st- struggle for independence all about us, um, not uh, recognizing that this was a story which has deep roots in the Mexican Republic. And so once you, which is another reason for widening that lens. I mean, once you ex- acknowledge that, then even the, the 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 narrative that we know so well, it's almost impossible to imagine that we could learn anything new about the events of 35, 36. But of course, that's not the case. Because if you look at that relationship between Zavala and Santa Ana, um, those events are um, really informed by that bitter, bitter rivalry. Um, yeah, could you, could you say a little bit more about that? Because I found that an absolutely fascinating uh, portion of your book. I mean, you argue for the centrality of that relationship, maybe especially its contentiousness for some of the events that follow in 1835 and 1836. You can't understand it without understanding um, the level of sort of uh, antagonism and distrust born of sort of familiarity and affection between uh, De Zavala and Santa Ana. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, it is. I mean, I, you can't call them frenemies because as I 
understand the term frenemy, uh, they can be friends and enemies at the same time. That was not the case here. Uh, they had been, it was a marriage of political expedience. Uh, they had uh, conspired to overturn the results of the 1828 ele- election and install Vicente Guerrero. And from that point on, uh, they were um, allies, then enemies, then allies, then enemies. And the the rupture, the final rupture came uh, after the plan of Cuernavaca. And Lorenzo de Zavala is the minister to Paris at the time, minister to France in Paris at the time. And he writes a scathing um, op-ed, a, he writes a letter of resignation, but a, a, an op-ed, which is published in the opposition newspapers, in which he um, excoriate, excoriates Santa Ana and says, you have torn the Constitution to pieces. And he goes to Texas uh, in the summer of 1835. And as far as anyone knows in Mexico City, um, Zavala is attempting a uh, trying to uh, stir up a revolution in Texas to make Texas a beachhead of opposition to this to the Santanista regime and the correspondence among Mexican officials in the fall of 35 are replete with references to Zavala um, and that's an understatement. I mean, he is enemy number one. Uh, Santa Ana did not know who William Barrett Travis was, but he had a very long history with Lorenzo de Zavala. And so in the early months of this, uh, uh, this conflict, the focus is on Lorenzo de Zavala. And even when later it becomes, it's quite clear that this will not be a revolution or rebellion led by Mexican Federalists, but by Anglo-American settlers and their, and American volunteers. Even when that becomes clear, uh, Santa Ana is still um, fixated um, with uh, bringing Lorenzo de Zavala back to Mexico uh, in chains. So having grown up in Texas uh, and taken Texas history in seventh grade, Santa Ana, of course, is you know perhaps the arch villain of the story. Your portrait is somewhat more, it's certainly more fulsome, but I think it's also could be said somewhat more sympathetic. Is that a fair reading or you know, do you not want to go on record? <laughs> no, no, I, I don't mind going on record. I think that um, the interesting thing about Santa Ana is he's been, he's sort of almost a, a, a cartoonish figure to Texas and, and American historians. And there's been very little pushback um, by uh, Mexicanists. Um, and I just see him as, for those people who are American historians listening, I, I really do think there's um, an analogy between Santa Ana and Andrew Jackson. I mean, both of these men are... Um, back um, country military leaders and you can't and and also men who have uh, been recognized for rescuing the nation um, from foreign threats the british in the battle of new orleans of course in andrew jackson's case and uh, the battle of tampico in santa Ana's case and they're not intellectuals uh, they don't see policy in um ideological terms. Uh, They see them in intensely personal terms. Um, I could go into Andrew Jackson here. I I won't, uh, but suffice it to say that um, he's driven by um, his friendships and his um, uh, enemies. And 
Santa Anna is exactly the same way. When Santa Anna seizes power in 1833, he personally drafts a list of names of men who he wants expelled from the country. Uh, again and again, um, when he takes a personal interest in a particular policy, then he will act on it. But there's no ideological consistency there. I don't think you can say that he's ideologically flexible, because although I may have actually said that in the book, uh, th that would sort of assumes that he has um, an ideology to begin with. And I think that he really doesn't here. He's, he's motivated by... Um, uh, he sees politics in intensely personal terms, and he acts accordingly. So is he, is he a sympathetic character? Um, I, I, I would like to think that in the book, he's a um, certainly uh, a more complete character than the, this kind of cartoonish um, tyrant uh, that he's been so often characterized as, the Napoleon of the West, mm. a term which I, I, I have never seen used uh, in Mexican newspapers or in Mexican correspondence. Um, he's just, I'm not sure that there is any figure uh, in the history of North America, certainly in the 19th century, who is more misunderstood than Santa Ana. Mm. We've got a wonderful picture of him in the book that I believe may come from, is it SMU's own Daguerre Library? Yes, yeah. it does. I'm not sure I'd ever seen that photograph before. I'd certainly seen plenty of likenesses, but never a picture. I really liked that. that added well, I, I, that, I insisted on that uh, daguerreotype. And the reason is because every time you see Santa Ana, he's in military dress, resplendent in military dress. And here he looks like a, a Mexican civil servant. And uh, he is not the... Um, uh, you know, the intimidating, you know, uh, formidable dictator that he's been character that you see in these other uh, more conventional paintings. Mm. Um, one of the biggest surprises for me of many was the Cherokee story. So I had no idea that the Cherokee very nearly secured a land based in East Texas only to see Mexican and later Anglo officials fail to deliver on multiple promises. Can you tell us that story, but can you also explain perhaps why that might be so unfamiliar to historians of the 19th century United States, t leaving out Texas? But this is just a story that I you know, had really absolutely no preparation for. You know, that's one of the great stories, I think, that's missing from this narrative. And I was um, determined to include it. Uh, and that's the story of the Native American diaspora. When we think of... Um, Native Americans moving west, we think of them moving into um, Indian territory, U.S. Indian territory in Arkansas and Oklahoma. But um, in the teens and the 20s, um, many Native Americans, and the Cherokees are the most prominent, but they're hardly the only one, uh, perhaps as many as um, uh, 20 uh, tribes are just simply moving either across the Sabine River um, or they are in U.S. Indian territory, uh, are unhappy there, and they uh, drift south uh, across the Red River. And no one's monitoring them. The Mexican government doesn't have any kind of presence in East Texas. And one of the parts of the early parts I, I, that I found absolutely hilarious. I think this is in chapter one or two, maybe chapter two, when Richard Fields, a Cherokee leader, who's been encouraging Native Americans to come into Texas, um, writes a letter to Mexican officials 
announcing himself as the superior chief of the Indians, uh, a title which meant absolutely nothing, but which he hoped would impress them. And it didn't impress them so much as alarm them, because no one knew he was doing this. It came as a complete shock to the alcalde in Nacogdoches and to the uh, political chief in San Antonio and to uh, Lucas Alamán in Mexico City. No one knew he was doing this. And it really does create quite a... um, uh, a, a controversy. Um, but of course, you know, uh, no one was monitoring the Cherokees in East Texas and no one was monitoring the, the Shawnees in the Delaware who were coming down from the, uh, from the Midwest or uh, the Kickapoo or the Chickasaws or the Choctaws or the Alabama Cushadas. And that story of Native American migration into Texas is one that I really wanted to tell first. So in my book, the, the first three chapters are about the Cherokees and the other immigrant tribes and their experiences in Texas. And I did that on purpose because I wanted people who were familiar with the traditional narrative uh, to be surprised by that. Because most people think that if we're going to talk about this period leading up to um, the revolution in 35, we start and end, by the way, uh, with Stephen F. Austin and that colony along the Brazos River. And Austin is something of a, a marginal figure in the first three chapters. I do talk about him. But I don't know how many Texans are aware that the first American migrants to Texas in the Mexican Republic period are Native Americans, uh, not Anglo-Americans. So I just think that's a great story. And it's, and it's also, as you said, it's a, it's a poignant one because they come so close to gaining legal title to their land. This was something that they wanted from the very, very beginning. I talk about it in the first chapter. And that campaign to get Mexico City to uh, to recognize that they were not squatters, but had legal title to the land they occupied, uh, that campaign is such a frustrating one uh, for them. And it it goes on for um, well over a decade. And when the rebellion between Anglo-Americans and the Mexican government breaks out, then um, the Cherokees make a decision to, to stay neutral. And that can only be understood in terms of their uh, enormous frustration with the Mexican government. And that decision to remain neutral uh, during the Texas rebellion uh, is really important in understanding how that those events finally play out and, um, and work in the favor of Anglo-American settlers. They yeah, could I... have been a major military. They could have turned the tide of that campaign for the Mexican government. And instead, they stay in their forested enclaves uh, in East Texas. And yeah, I found that absolutely fascinating, the way in which um, by remaining on the sidelines, effectively, it uh, proved to be an enormous assist to the uh, to the Anglo rebels, effectively. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you say anything about Chief Bowles, who I found a particularly fascinating character? <laughs> Right. Well, um, I start the book talking about Richard Fields um, and Chief Bowles. 
and they are both Cherokee leaders, but they're very, very different men. Uh, Bowles is one of the early migrants. Um, he is a Western Cherokee who moves west in 1811, and Richard Fields follows in, I think, 1817, and they both wind up in Texas. And they're very, very different men. Uh, Bowles is a traditionalist. He uh, was true to the old ways. And Richard Fields had been uh, Americanized, and and he had speculated in, la- in land back in Tennessee, and he owned slaves in Tennessee. And in many ways, he was um, an empresario wannabe. Um, he's not successful. He doesn't get the go-ahead from the Mexican government. But he's perfectly happy uh, petitioning the Mexican government for land um because he understands the value of legal title. Um, Bowles, perhaps less so, um, but eventually he comes to realize that they, the, the Cherokees are um, not going to be secure in their homeland, in the Piney Woods, between the Angelina and Natchez River, unless they get some um, written um, statement from the Mexican government saying that they are allowed to be there. So ultimately, I think Bowles becomes convinced. I don't know that he was at first, but ultimately becomes convinced that Richard Fields, who has been is now dead, um, that that he was right all along, and so he pursues that um, idea of le- that that idea of legal title, where. He and the Mexican officials who want to help the Cherokees are at odds, is that uh, Mexican Mexicans like Mieri Tehran, uh, who was really one of the steadfast defenders of the Cherokees, Mieri Tehran wanted to give individual Cherokee families um, small 200-acre plots. He wanted to turn them into yeoman farmers. And this was really antithetical to Cherokee culture. It wasn't something that Bowles understood. And it, as it turned out, um, it, the plan uh, never got off the ground anyway. Um, so it was a just a, a tortured uh, path to um, the uh, this attempt to gain legal title. And there were so many dead ends. They came so close on so many occasions. But ultimately, um, the Mexican government tended to be, you know, there was bureaucratic inaction, lethargy, incompetence, whatever you want to call it, uh, never really um, was able to uh, do anything that would satisfy the Cherokees. And that's why, of course, in 35, as we said, the Cherokees decide to stay on the sidelines. So Bowles, though, after the revolution is over, um, Bowles has agreed to stay as as has has f- fulfilled his part of the bargain. Uh, the Cherokees and the uh, immigrant tribes um, stayed at home. They were not part of this rebellion. And they had been promised um, legal title by uh, the new Texas government. And it didn't hurt that the uh, the new president, the first president of the Lone Star Republic was Sam Houston, a man who had um, extremely good relations with um, many Cherokee leaders. There's no evidence that he and Bowles knew each other back in the United States, but they certainly had friends in common. And so the assumption is that the Lone Star government is going to make good on its promise, uh, the promise that the Mexican government had failed to live up to. And that, of course, is another chapter of the very same sad story, uh, because uh, as we know, it, it doesn't happen. And the uh, not just the Cherokees, but all the immigrant tribes, uh, save the Alabama Cushada, are expelled in 1839 by Mirabeau Lamar. 
who is Houston's successor. Yes. Oh, it's such a sad story. Um, and you tell it so well. It really is, I think, maybe one of the most important, previously unfamiliar narratives that you bring to life in the um, in the book. Yeah, can um, I just say can I just say one thing? Sure, that, please. That when I talk to my students and you know what they remember about Texas history. And, you know, of course, this is something that they have very vague memories. Anyway, it was something that happened in seventh grade. But many of them remember that, yes, in fact, um, Mirabeau Lamar did expel uh, the uh, the immigrant tribes. They don't know they were immigrant tribes. They know that the, he expelled the Cherokees and other, other bands. What they don't know is how those Native Americans got there in the first place. And, and I've looked at a number of standard texts on this subject, and it's not a the, – the subject of Native American migration just isn't one that gets a lot of attention. Um, when the expulsion – of Native Americans takes place in 1839, then suddenly they become the focus of attention. But how Native Americans got there in the first place, in the teens and the 20s, and still into the 30s, Choctaws and Chickasaws were coming. That story uh, uh, remains to be told. I tried to tell it in Unsettled Land, uh, but it wasn't my sole focus. I had too many other things going on. Uh, I, I had there are other parts of the book that I wanted stories in the book that I wanted to tell, but I would say, and if there are enter, any enterprising graduate students out there, that one of the great un, uh, not understudied, but ignored uh, periods in uh, or subjects in t- early Texas, early 19th century Texas history is the study of Native American migration into Texas. We just don't know enough about it. So funny. Yes, an untold story in the history of early modern Texas, uh, if we can call it that. Um, and I was thinking the exact same thing, that uh, the enterprising graduate students would do well to, uh, uh, to take note of that. So we've talked about, um, obviously, the Mexican and Mexican-American people in Texas, the Hispanos. We've talked about Anglos. We've talked about um, uh, various indigenous groups that were here prior to the revolution. Um, one group we haven't talked much about at all, really, are, uh, are African-Americans. Um, the importance of slavery in bringing on the Texas Revolution uh, has been a subject of pretty increased debate in recent years. What does unsettled land have to say about this question, which, of course, got so much attention uh, in last year's book, Forget the Alamo? Right. Well, I take a somewhat different view. Um, but, of course, you know, there's always the caveat that when we're talking about white Americans from the lower south, slavery is always part of their thinking and their motivation, even if it's not part of the conversation. So it's always there. Um, Is it responsible for uh, the rupture in the fall of 1835? You know, I think it's important to understand that Anglo-Americans had been trying to take this land from Mexico for quite a while. Uh, The United States government uh, had become increasingly obnoxious in its attempts to acquire part or all of Texas. There is a very long filibuster tradition of men from the lower South going into Texas and trying to, and not not just men from the lower South, uh, going into Texas and trying to seize it for their own personal ambitions. Um, And this is long before um, cotton prices have taken off. Uh, in the United States. So uh, I, I do see it as sort of as a, as a land grab. I, I, I talk about the Fredonian Rebellion in 1826 and 1827. And that um, event, that conflict is really over land. Um, the 
revolts of 1832 are primarily, and I'm, I'm simplifying here, but primarily over disputes over um, customs houses and tariff legislation. And I would say that in 1835, the, uh, the, the rupture is occasioned by sudden, the sudden introduction of a large number of Mexican troops who arrive in the summer of 1835 and who are looking, by the way, just to go back to the, our conversation earlier, Lorenzo de Zavala and others. And it, that is what precipitates the crisis in 1835. Now, once that crisis occurs, then slavery becomes very, very important. And although the Declaration of Independence doesn't, Texas Declaration does not mention slavery, the Constitution, which is written at exactly the same time uh, in March of 1836, has a lot to say about slavery. And of course, slavery becomes absolutely essential to understanding the annexation of Texas uh, a decade later. But I think, you know, rebellions on the whole tend to be rather ad hoc affairs and the men who participate in them don't necessarily have a broader agenda. It would sort of like being sort of like saying that the um, the urban poor in Paris stormed the Bastille uh, because they envision a Thermidorian republic. I, I don't think that they do, uh, and I'm not sure that we can say that of uh, Anglo colonists in 1835. Um, so. Is it a cause? It's certainly there. It's certainly important to understand. But if you're looking for an overarching framework to understand why that rebellion occurs, I'm not sure that slavery and only slavery is all that satisfying. I, I think you have to go and understand that filibustering subculture. Uh, Robert May has a brilliant book was published in the 1990s, Manifest Destiny's Underworld. And he talks about Texas and, of course, all the many, many, many other um, extra-legal attempts to seize, um, to seize land. Uh, from Spain, from Mexico, and even from um, even from British-held Canada. Um, this was part of American. Uh, this was something that that thousands and thousands of Anglo-American men did, and I think it predates um, slavery becoming the third rail of American politics. Hmm. Well, given the extent of anti-Black prejudice in Texas, what are we to make of the experience of? You know, for me, is maybe the most fascinating character in the book, William Goyens, who's a free man of color who worked as a blacksmith, but also dabbled in diplomacy. How do we understand him? Goyens is a fascinating character. He doesn't have any written correspondence, um, and, but he's referred to by many people uh, in their letters. And it turns out, luckily for the historian, uh, he is an extraordinarily litigious individual. And he is suing people left and right, both in the Mexican period and even in the, the Lone Star Republic. And so you can learn a lot about him by studying his legal travails. And it is a great story. And again, so many of these stories, when they involve people of color, are poignant, um, like the Cherokees. But is is a story of a man who had some real authority in the Mexican period. Nacogdoches was a sort of a, I don't want to call it a new town, uh, but it had been depopulated during the War of Independence. And so it was just beginning again. 
in the early 1820s. And he was this remarkably enterprising individual. He starts off as a blacksmith, but he quickly diversifies. Uh, he's unquestionably the most uh, di- diversified businessman in Nacogdoches uh, in the 18, late 20s, early 30s. He has a um, a, a shipping business, a carting business, shipping um, uh, pelts and furs from uh, Nacogdoches to uh, Natchitoches in Louisiana. Uh, he eventually will buy um, a grist mill. Uh, he's a sawmill by the 1830s. Uh, he bought land in town, and for, for a while he was an innkeeper. Um, by the early 1830s, he's moved outside of town and built uh, a two-story home for himself and his wife, which was known to the locals as Goyans Hill. And of course, the uh, after the um, rebellion is over, then these racial boundaries that had existed in the Republic period snap taut. Uh, to the, and that, of course, is a problem for all free blacks and uh, certainly for William Goyans. Now, um, William Goyans is able to survive and even thrive in the Republic period. But I'm not sure that the same can be said for other free blacks. Uh, But the reason he uh, is able to do so is because he was from North Carolina originally. Uh, He knew the Cherokee language. There's some evidence that he actually fought in the Cherokee Regiment, the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. And he turns out to be this very skilled negotiator. he is the link for Span- for Mexican authorities and later for Anglo authorities between um, the uh, officials, authorities in Nacogdoches and the uh, Cherokee community uh, to the north. Uh, he's absolutely indispensable for Sam Houston uh, in 1835 and 1836. And uh, Houston continues to rely on him in his first term as president. In fact, he makes him an Indian agent. One of his first acts as president is to make William Goyans the uh, agent to the Cherokees. So he's extremely important politically and diplomatically. Um, Of course, by the time uh, Mirabeau Lamar comes along, Mirabeau Lamar is only interested in expelling the immigrant tribes, as we said. And so he has no use for William Goyans uh, whatsoever. But, you know, he still is able to to buy land at rock bottom prices in Nacogdoches when the economy crashes in the late 30s. And so um, he... It, it's it's a remarkable story of survival, um, and uh, but nonetheless, uh, it was difficult for Goyans as it was for all free blacks because the United because the Texas government passes a law in 1840, a very draconian one, uh, insisting on the expulsion of all free blacks from the country, and uh, those who uh, can stay are those who have powerful friends and who can um, sponsor a, a, a special bill on their behalf. And Sam Houston, Thomas Jefferson Rusk, and other um, movers and shakers in Nacogdoches are happy to do that. So there is a special bill, uh, and he will stay in Nacogdoches. To be perfectly honest, the bill was unenforceable anyway. Uh, Texas just simply didn't have the resources to expel free blacks, although it may have wanted to. But it's just another example of how William Goyan's world changed after 1836. He was very skillful in navigating this new world, this harsh new world, um, but it was um, a, a, uh, a difficult world nonetheless for him and for all, all other uh, free blacks living in Texas. 
You said something very poignant in that answer about, and very vivid as well, about how after the revolution, these sort of racial lines, they snapped taut. That's what you said. Um, help me understand, I mean, I, there may be an easy answer to this, but uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on why it is that there is such a before and after quality. Is it simply a matter of white supremacy? What explains the fact that there is this kind of liminal quality, room for a variety of different groups to maneuver, and that basically, you know, as soon as the revolution is complete, although as you say, in some ways it's, you know, it's really not complete in 1836, but that when the fighting's over, uh, there is this rush in some ways to divide folks along racial lines. Um, help me help me understand that. Yeah, sure. Well, I don't think anyone would say that Mexico was a colorblind society, and I'm certainly not saying that. Um, but it was a mixed race society. And uh, Native Americans, uh, free blacks, had far more agency in the Mexican Republic than they did after the rebellion was over. And although free blacks, uh, Native Americans, um, t- Hispanos, I really avoid the use of I avoid the use of the term Tejano because it doesn't, it's not clear enough. Um, but these people of color who had um, enjoyed um, a great deal of agency in the Mexican, Mexican era are now suddenly um, under, under threat uh, in different ways. Obviously, as we've already talked about the, the expulsion of the Cherokees, um, the draconian laws passed uh, affecting free blacks, but even for Hispanos, um, who had some of whom had supported the rebellion, not all. I want to make that clear. I think we've really sort of exaggerated the role that Hispanos played during the rebellion. But those who did play a role in that rebellion lived to regret it, because in the years that follow, um, the people of San Antonio, uh, the people of Victoria and Goliad, uh, these predominantly uh, Hispano communities, uh, these are communities under siege. And so um, it's a bleak story for all people of color. And you do see, I think, I mean, I make no bones about it in the book that the Lone Star Republic really is defiantly committed to this ideology of white rule, this idea that it will be a mixed race society uh, is an idea that nobody takes seriously. And one of the shocking things to me is how, um, how there are so um, such so many, uh, so few voices raised against those policies. Um, You do find that Sam Houston is a friend to the Cherokees right up to the bitter end. Uh, he certainly can't stop Mirabel Lamar's expulsion policy. And you do find that Houston, too, uh, is a friend to uh, Hispanos in San Antonio, has very close friends, uh, connections with the Seguins and others. But to say that he's an outlier, I think, would really be uh, an understatement. You just don't find anyone else who's willing to sp- uh, stand up and speak out for people of color uh, after 1836. So, Sam, the era of the Republic of Texas, which is confusing in its own right, often gets squeezed between the Texas Revolution on the one hand and then the U.S.-Mexico War on the other. Can you give me your take on the Lone Star Republic? Sure. 
um, that was one of the things that I really wanted to talk about. I started my career, as you said in the intro, uh, working on the Texas Republic, and it is so often ignored. Um, historians of Texas have been fixated with the, the Texas Revolution, and uh, and you're right. Of course, the U.S.-Mexico War has gotten a, a great deal of attention recently. Some really terrific work has been done on it. But the Texas Republic is a fascinating experiment in nationhood that lasts about 10 years after San Jacinto. And that was a story that I really wanted to tell simply because I think we've periodized the way we think about the revolution um, the wrong way. Um, the, uh, the effects of the revolution are being felt long after the smoke clears at San Jacinto, um, not just for uh, whites, but perhaps, but certainly more so for people of color. Uh, so it's a fascinating period. Um, fascinating because I think in, uh, on one hand, uh, this is a nation which sets about to establish a, a, a white man's utopia. The Texas constitution is a extraordinarily radical, um, uh, in many ways, progressive document. Uh, there's a land giveaway for everyone who is living in Texas at the time of the rebellion. Uh, there are um, references to debtor relief, uh, references to um, uh, uh, monopolies uh, pro prohibiting them, uh, references to um, an education policy um, for all citizens of the Republic. All of these things, I mean, it's just absolutely remarkable. Uh, they, they, in the Jacksonian age, is certainly a period which we think of when we think about the rise of universal white male suffrage uh, the uh, founders of the Texas Republic were ready and uh, willing to go much, much farther than that in creating a republic for uh, white men. So it's a very democratic document in many ways. But at the same time, of course, just as in the United States, the, the benefits that accrue to white men came at the expense of people of color. The uh, land giveaway program, 4,600 acres to everyone living in Texas in 1836, that land, of course, would come at the expense of Native Americans. And much of that land would be put into, um, the, into, into agriculture and especially for, uh, in, in, into cotton which would require the, um, the, the expansion of the, um, of the slave power in Texas. So it's a remarkable period, and, it's and it needs to be seen in conjunction with the Texas Revolution. Uh, I don't, just don't think that you can separate the two. So to end the Texas Revolution at San Jacinto, I think, is a, a, a very, very big mistake. And that was something that I wanted to correct in the historiography. So explain to me why you think people who write about that period, particularly folks who are interested in the Texas Revolution, why do you think it is that they basically end, you know, as you said, with the smoke clearing at San Jacinto and spend so little time on what I've always thought of as the as the much maligned Republic of Texas, maligned in some ways because it's failed um, and because it doesn't ultimately succeed, uh, maligned rightfully perhaps because 
of some really lamentable attributes, but you make a case for its significance. And I'm wondering why it is that um, so many historians have sort of failed to pay attention to that or take it seriously, or is that an unfair reading? Well, perhaps because it is a failed state and it seems to you know go against the grain of, of the sort of traditional Texas exceptionalism. And it's definitely an anomaly, but uh, I like to think of the Texas Republic as this experiment in in not just an experiment in nationhood, but sort of Jacksonian, Jacksonian America on steroids. I, I think I say in the book that it exhibits all the unbridled impulses of the Jacksonian id. And, and I think that's absolutely true. As we said earlier in the interview, um, Houston is an outlier as a spokesman, as an advocate for Native Americans, as an advocate for um, Mexican Texans. There, the guardrails that existed in the American Republic and the, even in the Jacksonian Republic uh, just simply don't exist in uh, Texas uh, from 1836 to 1845. And so that's where I think this white man's democracy can really – you really see the, the, um, the, the, the consequences of that, uh, of that ideology. Why does it fail so spectacularly and in some ways so quickly since it really only exists for about a decade? Well, for one reason, I mean, it, it exhibits all sort of the imperial swagger of its country of origin. Uh, Anglo-Texans uh, only claim, uh, only um, uh, inhabit and control a, a small area uh, of the uh, the region that we know today as Texas. Uh, they certainly don't control the region below the Nueces, and they really don't control very much beyond the uh, uh, west of the the, uh, the San Antonio uh, Road, or the uh, as it was called the the El Camino Real. Um, those are the 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 domains of uh, Mexicans below the Nueces and uh, the uh, many Native American tribes like the Wichita and the Comanches. If we're talking, you know, west of the San Antonio Road, so they only they have a foothold in Texas. Uh, Anglo Texans do, but not much more. Uh, and yet uh, they claim the Rio Grande as their southern and western boundary. And and on one occasion, actually in the early 1840s, claimed the Pacific Ocean is their western boundary, uh, and it's it's that kind of hubris that I is so fascinating about this uh, about this period about this uh, this failed state. Yes, because as you know as well as I, uh, just about any Texan will be one of the first or second things they tell you, which is that Texas once endured as an independent republic. Uh, what they don't then say is the part that you just did, which was that it was a pretty spectacular failure. It, it really was. So let's think actually about that larger question beyond the borders of Texas. Um, I do think that obviously Texans and historians of Texas in particular are surely going to read your book. Many already have, and you've gotten some lovely early reviews. But let me ask you, how would you pitch your book in terms of its importance to somebody teaching a class on the 19th century United States more broadly? How do you think this would fit in in maybe um, sort of a, a general historiographical survey of the long 19th century? Why this book? Well, I think if you're um, interested in Jacksonian America, as I said a minute ago, then you have to show you have to uh, you have to be interested in the Texas Republic, because um, this is the Jacksonian agenda um, in its purest form. Uh, again, there are no guardrails in the Texas Republic. You do not have an anti-slavery lobby in Congress. You do not have uh, the Supreme Court uh, speaking up for Native Americans. Um, Anglo-Americans in Texas can do pretty much 
what they want. And what they want is a, uh, a white man's republic. Uh, and that's what they get uh, for nine and a half years. It's a spectacular failure, uh, but it wasn't for want of trying. So I think that, that the ideology of white rule is so strong in the Texas Republic, and, it, and you see it in its, you know, most, in its purest and most naked form uh, in that 10-year period. So as a, um, you know, as a lesson in <laughs> Jacksonian democracy, uh, I, I think it serves pretty well. Mm. Something that uh, maybe is a little bit more abstract, um, but that I want to address anyway. I've told you on a couple of occasions how much I enjoyed the reading experience of your book, that it's just so phenomenally well-written. It's well-paced. You've got some really wonderful anecdotes. You take um, some... Uh, some stories that are familiar and you make them strange. I'm quoting David Weber here in a different context. You take some stories that are strange and make them familiar. Um, and it's just a really wonderful kind of propulsive read. I've read uh, most of your work, all of which I think is fluid and engaging, but there's something pretty special about this. And I'm just wondering, did you approach the writing of this book a little bit differently? Why, why does it sing um, sort of so specially? Well, this was a, um, a book that I wrote for Basic Books. It's a trade press. And I really um, wanted to write uh, for a general audience. All my books in the past had been for, uh, for academics uh, or for college students. And so I wanted to... Um, I wanted to to write, and um, you know, I started my career as a journalist uh, for for a couple of years when I got out of college, and um, then that career ended, and I moved into academia. But I um, I thought, actually, to be perfectly honest, I thought it would be very easy to go back to, and it wasn't. Uh, if you've been um, trained as a historian for three decades, writing as a historian for three decades, uh, you, you know, you've never met a semicolon that you didn't like. And I, um, you know, found that it was really hard to move to a different kind of writing style, short, pithy sentences, uh, short, compact chapters. Um, that was the kind of thing that I was, I was shooting for. And uh, it was, a lot of fun to do, I, I, I have to say, but it wasn't as easy a process as I thought. Maybe I had just sort of forgotten how to be a journalist after all these years. Uh, but there are some historians, Amy Greenberg, for one, uh, who has written some terrific uh, books in uh, her career. And when she wrote uh, A Wicked War on the U.S.-Mexico War, she was writing it for a general audience. And I, I kind of used that as a guide um, because I remember reading a a wicked war and i was so familiar with her earlier work on uh, manifest destiny and manhood and it was just hard to imagine it was the same person writing and i told her this and uh, we talked about uh, just the uh, changing the uh, you know, the writing style and how difficult it was but um i i i admire her for the uh, the way she was able to do it so she was sort of my model and um it was a it was a it was a terrific experience, I must say. And I think you know more historians need to do it. I mean, we write for each other, and we don't write for the general public. And I just kept thinking about a you know a book that maybe my members of my family who are not academics uh, might actually enjoy reading. And I think that was you know 
partially, hopefully that was successful. They, they tell me it was anyway. <laughs> um, well, there's a way in which uh, it seems that Amy's book might have been even more of a model because, as I recall, Wicked War is built uh, to a great degree around sort of a handful of characters. And I remember in first talking to you some years ago about this book, that that is kind of how you conceived of this story, that you were going to populate it with some people who were well-known. Of course, Stephen F. Austin has um, uh, you know, um, a presence. Certainly Sam Houston does. But then folks like those, some of whom we've talked about, William Goyens or Lorenzo Zavala, or frankly, um, for you to tell not so much about Sam Maverick, although he matters in your story, but as, as much about his wife, Mary. Did you, did you come to this book in some ways thinking that you were going to organize it around people as a particular way to propel the narrative? I did. Um, uh, there were certain people I thought who had been ignored. A historian, a friend of mine who read the book, uh, and talked to me about it a couple of months ago, said that he was really, he really liked the way uh, I brought in um, insignificant characters. And, and, I, and I remember thinking, and I can't remember if I told him this or not, well, they weren't all that insignificant to me. Um, some of these people are, I think, just simply ignored, uh, and they need to be brought to the foreground. I mean, Lorenzo de Zavala is a classic example. Uh, you simply cannot understand the Texas Revolution without looking at Lorenzo de Zavala. I would also argue that William Wharton, uh, this planter along the Brazos, who is um, extremely important in the summer of 1835, you probably don't have a rebellion without him. He's the Sam Adams of the Texas Revolution, and he's been ignored. Some of the other characters, though, are admittedly minor, but they were chosen for a reason. Um, Thomas Jefferson Green is um, someone who I see as um, emblematic of this adventurer class, the kind of man who was on the make, who was out for the main chance, and would do anything he could to draw attention to himself. And he's a thorn in the side of the Houston administration and really so many people uh, during his time in Texas. Um, but it, it was men like Thomas Jefferson Green who made Texas such a chaotic place during the rebellion and during the Rep Republic period. As far as the Mavericks were concerned, Sam Maverick was, was interesting as a land speculator, and I wanted to spend time talking about land speculation. Uh, but I guess I was more interested and drawn to his, his wife, Mary Maverick, and that was simply because her diaries and letters are such a poignant reflection of just the, the – uh, the travails that all women, not just Anglo-American women, that all women faced uh, on the West Texas frontier. Um, but they are illuminating. Um, and what I liked about Mary Maverick was the fact that you know, she has a she has a diary which has been published, uh, but it was also sort of cleaned up quite a bit by family members who who, who published it many years ago. Uh, her diary, I discovered. Uh, when I was working in the Briscoe Library, uh, Briscoe Center in, in uh, at UT Austin, um, contained many passages, uh, particularly uh, to her uh, her relationship with her uh, the enslaved people in her household, which really paint her in a much less flattering light. Mm. And that appealed to me as well. I mean, I think that we have a tendency when we write about historical figures to sort of ignore the warts. And uh, I think a, a warts and all approach is uh, is preferable. So she is in many ways a, a sympathetic 
character. Um, but that doesn't mean that um, there is a side to her that is that, that is certain that is less sympathetic. And I wanted to bring that out as well. She has very snarky things to say about a lot of the people in San Antonio, and it made her, I think, a, a, a more hum, human figure. Yes, indeed. She really stands out in that regard because didn't she and her husband lose, they lost some sort of surprising number of children, didn't Four they? Four children to disease. Yeah. Uh, three of them in a very, very short span of time. I can't remember exactly. The fourth one dies somewhat later. But within, I think within three years, uh, four, uh, three of those children um, have died um, Cholera, I think, takes one. I'm, um, I think cholera takes two of them. I can't remember the third. But it is a um, living on the Anglo-American frontier uh, for Mary Maverick is a, um, a very, very difficult experience. She's uh, one of, if not the first Anglo-American women to live in San Antonio. And she will die at the turn of the century uh, when San Antonio is a, a, is a metropolitan area. So it's, it's, it's quite an extraordinary life. Yeah. Yeah, those characters really do stand out, both from the familiar to the uh, to the less familiar. Okay, so my last question for you um, may seem a little bit unfair, considering the extraordinary work that obviously went into this book. But still, I'm going to ask you what comes next. Um, so do you have the next project, big or small, mapped out, even at the fuzziest level? Sure. Well, I, uh, well even before I worked on this book uh, a, a project that I had to set aside was um, a project on the on the daughters of the Republic of Texas and just the the way in which they had sort of crafted this early narrative of the of the Texas Revolution um, and I became interested in the sort of just the the, the gendered um, uh, ways in which you know memory is constructed uh, the DRT, the ladies of the DRT, have a very, very different view of the Texas Revolution than, say, the men who are crafting that narrative uh, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s. Um, that is when it becomes a much more hyper-masculinized narrative. But the DRT is really interested in um, creating a narrative that will appeal to and inspire uh, young people and future generations. So they're not interested in the, the white alpha males like Davy Crockett and, and James Bowie. They're interested in the people who um, seem to be inspirational. So they talked a lot about uh, William Barrett Travis because of his letters from the Alamo. They talked a lot about Mirabeau Lamar in the sense that he was dubbed by DRT members the father of Texas education. Of course, he should be known for something uh, for something else, uh, the expulsion of uh, Native peoples in 1839. Um, they talked about Ben Milam, who had called upon Anglo-Texans to uh, um, join with him in the uh, first uh, Battle of San Antonio in December. Those were the people they were really interested in. And... Um, Davy Crockett, uh, James Bowie, uh, those the, those um, alpha males that are so much a part of the story, uh, those are crafted by men in subsequent generations. Um, initially, of course, women are crafting the narrative because um, men aren't. Uh, they're, they just, the historical commemoration was left exclusively to women. And um, that's why the Alamo began to take on the this sacred 
character, thanks to women like Adina De Zavala and Clara Driscoll. Um, so the narrative is still a, tri- a triumphalist one. It's still a celebratory narrative. When um, men get in on the act and they see the um, the tourist dollars that can be generated by historical commemoration, um, so both groups, uh, first women, then men, um, propagate this traditionalist, triumphalist narrative. But if you look closely, you see that they um, have very, very different priorities. And, and that's what appealed to me. So the project that I set aside was a, um, a project on the DRT and uh, the, the rivalry between Clara Driscoll and Adina De Zavala. And I wanted to take that story into sort of the, uh, the, the mid-20th century when that narrative becomes a much more uh, hyper-masculinized one. Mm. Fascinating. Well, Sam, thanks so much for the conversation. The book, again, is Unsettled Land, From Revolution to Republic, The Struggle for Texas, published early in 2022 by Basic Books. Thanks again, Sam, for the conversation. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Andy. It was great.